You're getting rid of me after today. Good morning. <laughs> Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Hey, I want to say something to graduates, okay? Right off the hop, uh, I want to say this to you graduates, especially those who are graduating high school or university. When that happens, it generally means you move, you go somewhere else, you experience a new chapter in life. Let me just say a word of pastoral encouragement and exhortation to you, okay? Um, the most important thing you can do when you move to that new chapter, that new place in life, the most important thing to do is to find a community of committed Christ followers that you will enter into, okay? It's nice to know where the best, uh, you know, latte is. And that's a nice thing, but it will not serve your soul. So find yourself a like-minded, deep followers of Christ that will journey with you in this next chapter, okay? Okay, I really encourage you to do that, okay? Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these graduates and for this new chapter. And we see uh, new doors opening for all of them, whether it's off into high school and all uh, the hopes and aspirations that that reveals to us, whether it's out of high school and now onto higher ed or into the marketplace, the workforce, whether it's uh, completing uh, uh, graduate education, whatever that is, Father, would you just encourage and bless these students, these men and women, Thank you for them. Thank you for the investment that this church has made in them. And Father, we trust you in that investment. And so may they go and walk resolutely and deeply and daily with their Lord Jesus. Father, God, help me now as we open the message this morning. And uh, Father, would you help me? I am not worthy nor capable of the task at hand. I need your help, Lord. I need your help. And so Father, God, superintend. Uh, our star attraction today is King Jesus. And we want him on his throne. And we will sit at his feet. And we will worship. So Father God, may you be pleased with our time together as your children this day. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Uh, this week I was in Toronto for a couple of days uh, during those really hot days, you know, those really hot days. And so I was in meetings all day. And uh, so one day I thought, oh, you know, when you're just sitting all day, I thought I, I need to get some exercise. No surprise there looking at me. And so at lunchtime I did what I haven't done in a long time, and that's go to the mall. I decided to walk through the mall because it was air conditioning. So I'm walking through the mall, you know, and I'm minding my own business. I'm walking along. I'm looking at all these stores and everything. And there's this young man standing in front of this store, and he's holding something in his hand. And I'm walking along, and he goes, wow, sir, what are you doing with your skin? <laughs> okay. So the first thing I do is I look around. <laughs> and, and it's me he's talking to, and I go, pardon me? Because I've had a lot of things said to me, but that's not common. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And I sort of, sort of walked closer to him, and he said, your skin looks fantastic. And I said, well, thank you. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> And he said, so you must be putting something on it and doing something with it. So now I know I'm, I sort of look up and I can see this is kind of a beauty joint, you know, like saw all this high price. I, I got to look up there and, and I, he says, you must be putting something on it. 
And I said, well, sometimes I put oil on it. And he said, well, what kind of oil? And I said, well, like if I'm eating a cheeseburger, it's mayonnaise. <laughs> so now he was starting to drift a little bit. And he holds up this little packet. Now, you ready for this? Here's what this says. 24 carat. See, I'm a goldsmith by trade. This means something to me. 24 carat deep day moisturizer cream. He said, sir, you should try this. So I said, well, you know, I, I, you know, you told me my skin looks good as it is, but he said, but it won't stay that way. <laughs> I said, well, right, you, you know, like I think you, you just told me it looks good. And he said, no, no, the future, sir, the future, if you want it to stay like this, you need our 24 karat deep day moisturizing cream. And you probably need a five gallon drum of it. Uh, so he said, you're gonna need this, right? And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, my, my friends now, most of my friends, they, when I'm with them, they say, man, do you ever look like George Clooney? And by then he was done. And, and any potential for a sale was gone because he goes, maybe a little bit. That was it. I said, well, thank you. But he still gave this to me. Now, that young man had been trained by somebody to trade on the hopefulness of a person's future. To speak into their life and say, if you want your future to be hopeful as far as your skin goes, then you're going to buy this product. Because, you know, it, it, right now you're here, sir, but oh man, you know, it could get worse. But hey, if you buy this, it actually might get better. You know, I want to give you a hopeful future. And in my last Sunday with you in, at this time, I want to talk to you about a hope-filled future. So we're going to finish up in the book of Ruth, and I'm going to share a couple of other things that are not tightly connected to that, but I want to share with you before I go. So open your Bibles to book of Ruth chapter 4. It's this wonderful story, this iconic story in the Word of God concludes for us. We're going to read uh, the last, uh, last 10 verses or so here, and then I'm going to unpack it and hopefully give you some things that will be helpful to you in your hope-filled future. So hear the word of God, Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, remember? Boaz went and he said, hey, I, I'm going to take this woman as my wife, and if you want to buy her property, uh, her mother-in-law's property, you know, you may think you're getting Ruth, but I'm actually going to take Ruth as my wife. And so we read here in verse 13, he takes Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in most translations, gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, became his nurse. Then the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered, fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. 
Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Wow. Story begins with a couple, Elimelech and Naomi, who with their two sons, Malan and Chilion, travel from God's chosen place for them to live down to Moab. The two boys do what is not within God's will and they marry Moabite girls. They know that that's against the mind of God and they suffer bitter consequences. Dad, Elimelech, dies. And the boys eventually die, and these three widows are left in a very difficult place. Life is hard. And then Naomi decides to move back to Bethlehem and start over, because there may be some help available amongst her people. The reason why they left is because there was a famine there. The famine is now lifted. She decides, let's go back. And the two daughter-in-laws, they're interested in going back, but she says, no, 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 you need to stay here, girls, and start a new life, find new husbands. And Orpah does just that, the one daughter-in-law, but the other Ruth is deeply committed to honoring her mother-in-law, and she journeys with her back to an unfamiliar, unfriendly place called Bethlehem. And Ruth, more than Naomi, in a much more difficult environment, will start over. And upon her arrival, Naomi and Ruth's arrival, her countenance is so uh, crushed that people notice it in Naomi, and Naomi is bitter. She's disappointed and angry with God. But God is not done with Naomi and Ruth, amen? Is God done with Temple Baptist Church in Sarnia? No, he's not. Not even close. Not even close. Because God has been at work, and God has been preparing a man named Boaz And God has been preparing for you a man named Terry. And these people will be united as family, as you will, I expect, in a few months or weeks. I don't know the details. And you will come together for God's glory and people's good as you embrace God's plan for the future. And it is a hopeful plan. When we join together one another for God's business and his plan and perform that in his way according to his will, great things happen. Do you believe that? Great things happen, but it requires three things. Surrender, give up your own agenda and your own small ambitions. Obedience, walk in his mind according to his word and faith. Take God at his word that he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. That's what you have to do. So let me give you four handles this morning as a church family, as you move forward in this new chapter, this new season, as individuals and as a church family. The first one is this, and listen carefully to this because somebody here this morning really needs to hear this because you're here this morning and the world is heavy and and life is tough and you're a little bit weak need and you're a little bit afraid. Hear this very carefully. Listen, point number one, do not measure your life at any one time in your life. Let me say that again. Do not measure your life at any one time in your life. The term Christian, if you identify as a Christian, Christ one, it literally means that you are one who is following Christ. Being a follower of Christ means that you have not arrived, but you're on a journey, amen? You're on a journey. 
And frankly, some days will be a lot better than others. You know, if you've believed in a Christianity that says, man, you become a Christian, everything's like, woohoo. That's not biblical Christianity. You're going to face those difficult days. The difference is Jesus is right there with you. And that's why you can't measure your life at any one day in your life. And let me just encourage you in this. My son-in-law, I may have told you, my son-in-law owns a surfboard manufacturing company in Sydney, Australia, and sells surfboards all over the world. He's an amazing guy, loves Jesus like crazy. He feels his mission is to minister to surfers because it's a sort of a whole subculture, and he does that through his company, and he's very generous, and he's an amazing guy. But he, he said something to me one time, it's very interesting. He goes, you know, a new surfer does this. He measures the size of the waves instead of the direction of the tide. See, as a Christian, don't do that. A lot of Christians say, oh, that was great. Wasn't that a great day? No, no, no. Don't measure the size of the waves because some days there's no waves. Measure the direction of the spiritual tide in your life. Is my spiritual tide moving closer and more deeply in love with Jesus or is it actually moving out to sea? Don't measure your life at any one time in your life. You know, David's life was not measured by, hmm, that's a good-looking lady over there on that rooftop. That was a bad day for David, terrible day. But his life wasn't measured by that. Your life is an aggregate. His life also wasn't measured by holding up a head of a giant. A chopped off head of a giant. I'll bet you if you grew up in Sunday school, they never did that with the flannel graph, did they? I used to bring that up when I was in. I'd say, hey, 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 Mrs. Crossman, you really should rip the head off Goliath and hold it up. But they, they just, they don't do that part. But his life also wasn't measured by that, right? Where he holds up the head and he said, hey, guess what? There is a God in Israel. And he's on his throne. So you can't measure by the spiritual mountaintops or the spiritual valleys. Measure your life by your spiritual tide, which brings us to my second point. Significance is not found in place nor position. See, not only did Naomi and Ruth not measure their life when they got back to Jerusalem and everything was in the tank, and, and Naomi, she says, you know what, man, I am bitter or whatever, but that was just a small chapter in their life. Significance is not found in place nor position. Her significance was not diminished because she was this widow and she comes back and she doesn't have any money and everything. No, she is a child of God still. Nothing can change that. Significance is not found in place or position. It's found in knowing a person named Jesus, being found in Christ. And we are servants of Christ. And no one, friends, no one can ever take you out of God's plan. Did you know that? They, they cannot deny you that. Now you can by refusing to surrender. Number three, my significance is measured by the depth and consistency of my obedience. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Boaz walked in the way of God, took Ruth as his wife. Ruth surrendered, she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Now, don't miss this. You have to read that verse in the context in which it's given. 
It's in the backdrop of Ruth's apparently 10-year, we, we can gauge about 10 years she was married to Malon, for whom she seems to have been unable to conceive. For 10 years, she's married to this guy, doesn't have a baby. She goes in with Boaz, they have relation, she conceives. It's in fulfillment of the prayer in the, of the witnesses in, gate, in uh, verse number two, the witnesses at the gate, in verse number 11 and 12, pardon me. And Yahweh graciously grants Ruth a baby as a gift. Friends, that's the way of the narrator saying, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. Ruth honored her mother-in-law. We just read that. She honors her mother-in-law. She did what was asked of her. She was consistent in her obedience and in her surrender. And she did it on a daily basis. Friends, we don't have anything to prove in Christ. Our goal, your goal as a faith community is to journey with each other in loving soul level relationship and share your struggles and sin and lift each other up to a higher standard and encourage each other to live continually as a reflection of Christ in obedience and surrender and in so doing to see his kingdom come on earth. See his kingdom come on earth because you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So we're to walk in the light of God's will as a church, individually, collectively. Naomi, she couldn't see all that pain. We talked about this, I think, two or three Sundays ago. She couldn't see all that pain as preparation until she held that little grandbaby in her hands. We have the benefit of reading all this just within a few pages. As a church, as a church, would you covenant to commit, to surrender, to obey God's will, God's command for this church? I think I may have mentioned to you when I first came here that uh, I grew up in a non-Christian home. My parents had no inclination to the things of God or church or anything like that. And when I was five years old, we were living in a little house on the west side of what was then Galt, Cambridge. And uh, <clears throat> we had milk delivered to our house. Anybody remember when you used to get milk delivered to you? You say that someplace people look at you like, they brought cows to your home? But we had milk delivered to our house. The man who delivered the milk lived at the far end of our street, and he'd come down to deliver milk, and at the other end of our street, and just around the corner on the next little street in this neighborhood was a little brethren church that had been started there by people who loved God and wanted to reach that neighborhood of what then was sort of wartime bungalows. Some of you know what that means. And so that milkman would deliver milk, and my parents began to chat with him and whatnot. And finally, one day, he tapped on the door of our house, and he said to my mom and dad, hey, you know, I go to church, my wife and I, we go to church in that little church around the corner from there, and uh, we noticed on Sundays when we drive by your house that you folks aren't go don't go to church, and that's great, but would you mind if we picked up your children? So I was five, my sister was seven. Could we pick up your kids and take them to our little Sunday school? And my parents, yeah, I think that'd be fine. And late, years later, they would say, well, that was in the days when you gave your kids away to people you didn't even know. And uh, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah. And so the next Sunday, they stopped in front of our house and loaded me and my sister in the backseat of the car, and they took us to that little church. And I began to attend there year in, year out, and, uh, and I was a brat, you know. And, you know, if, if a kid's a brat and he's a church kid, you kind of got to put up with him. 
But if he's not a church kid, you know, you almost want to say, hey, you know what, you're driving us nuts. And I drove him nuts. My parents bought a bigger house on the far side of town, and that church had done that, that little brethren church, that little brethren chapel had done that so many times, inviting neighborhood kids that they started a Sunday school bus ministry. Remember Sunday school, anybody here ride a Sunday school bus back in the, yeah. so that milkman started taking a turn driving that bus and they would come and pick us up and take us to church. When I was 10 years old, they said to my parents, can we have a backyard Bible club, which is the equivalent of your VBS today. Can we have a backyard Bible club in your backyard? My parents were Christians, but they knew that these were nice people. And they said, sure, you can do that. And so a nice college student came and led a backyard Bible club in my backyard, summer of 1973, and I prayed to receive Christ at that backyard. My parents weren't even Christians. When I became a teenager, my mom died quite suddenly and my house was a wreck. My dad became an alcoholic. When I was 17, I would go and bring him home from the bars most night. Couldn't drive. It was terrible. My sister went off to college and university, but because the home was in such disarray, I didn't have the opportunity to do that and that's why I should be smarter. I got a job fresh out of high school and I was working with a beautiful girl named Cheryl, and Cheryl was a committed follower of Jesus, and we began to talk about spiritual things. And finally I said, hey Cheryl, you wanna go on a date sometime? And she said, uh, I don't date boys that don't go to church. And I said, so if I go to church with you, we can go on a date? She goes, yep. And I said, one church, one date? It should really be one church, three dates. That, you know, because dates are more fun than church. She said, it's one and one. So she was going to Forward Baptist Church, which was on the other side of town, and a couple Sundays later, I went to church with her, and I went another Sunday and another Sunday, and she'd go on a date. About my third Sunday there, I'm standing in the foyer minding my own business, and I look over, and this elderly couple is coming towards me. I'm about... 20 years old at this point. And they walk up and they go, hi. They go, are you Steve Adams? And I'm like, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> I'm gonna be in the nursery, right? I said, mm, yeah. And they said, oh, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm on a bit of an exchange program. <laughs> <clears throat> And they said, oh, okay, okay. And they said, do you know us? And I said, I am sorry, I don't. And they said, oh, because we've prayed for you a lot. And I'm like, I don't even know these people. And then he said this, I used to be your milkman. Can you imagine? I used to be your milkman. Wow. So I started to attend that church and God regathered my heart unto himself. He was so gracious and kind to me. And if you don't have a sense that God has a sense of humor, I became the pastor of that church. <laughs> Can you imagine? But it's because that church was deeply committed. They surrendered and they obeyed God's will. You know something that I want to tell you that I always remembered from that church? 
once in a while, they'd take all of us kids from the basement Sunday school. It was a two-story kind of a deal, and all the kids were in the basement Sunday school. And they would take us up, and we'd sit in on big church once in a while if there was something special going on. And I can remember as a boy, about eight or nine years old, sitting in that upstairs big people's church and realizing that there was only like 20 adults upstairs in big people church and downstairs with our kids, me and all these other brats from the neighborhood, there was like 50 adults. Because they realized that it was God's will for them and God's pleasure to reach those kids in that neighborhood with Jesus. Sacrifice, surrender, obedience. And your life is measured by your continual daily sacrifice and obedience. Pray for these 160 kids that will be at your camp. There's some kids in there that will come to know Jesus from homes where Jesus isn't even welcome and they'll do something for God to bring him much glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Next, let the spirit have the run of the house. See, that's what Naomi and Ruth did. They said, the spirit's taking us back to Bethlehem. Naomi said, I'm going back. I'm, I'm mad at God. God, I don't know, I don't know what's going on, but uh, you know what? I, I'm still going to do this. And she still has an ear turned to God, even though she's kind of, you know, doing a better, I'm a bit angry with God. But let's the spirit have the run of the house and look what happens. They have a baby and the baby's named Obed and he's the father of Jesse and ultimately the father of David. What a change in Naomi's life, right? Imagine if you could have said to Naomi, hey, Naomi, I wonder who your great, 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 great grandson will be. Well, he'll be King David. He'll be the hinge point of the lineage for the savior of the world. Wow. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, let the word of Christ, the, I'm going to read it from the message. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Let God's word and God's will have the run of the house. And finally this, and then I'm going to change gears for the next few short minutes. Your future, Temple Baptist Church Sarnia, your future will be found in two things. God's goodness and your faithfulness. God's goodness and your faithfulness. And after 48 years of following Jesus, I can tell you assuredly, unwaveringly, that God is good. So I can guarantee you that. The second part of that, the other side of that ledger is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. Let me state the obvious. You have a new pastor coming. Lord willing, I got news for you. Don't let this leave this room. He's only a man. He's only a man. He's not the Savior. He's a man. He's a man who loves the Lord. And for some reason only God can explain he wants to come and be your pastor. Now listen carefully, listen carefully. No, 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 you think I'm slighting you. 
I'm not slighting you at all. You know, being a pastor is immensely difficult. I did it in a much bigger church than this. It's immensely difficult. I ran Christian parachurch organizations. I've owned a couple businesses. I've done some other things. Pastoring, immensely difficult. I'm going to tell you something else about Terry. Guess what? He's got feet of clay. And when you become a pastor, your feet of clay are no longer there. They're here at your eye level. Do you hear that? And lift your hand if you've been praying for God's man to come and lead this church. Put your hand up, okay? Look around. So when Terry and Doreen get here, and two or three months after he gets here, which happens in every single church where a pastor goes, somebody goes, I don't really like that decision. I'm not sure about that. Does that mean that God was wrong when he sent you Terry? No, it wasn't. Things will change and things will be different. Love your new pastor. Love your new pastor. Encourage your new pastor. Make him feel like this is home. Love his wife and love those two little boys. And you will have a hope-filled future. Realize he's not perfect. And some of you are not perfect either. Maybe quite a few, I don't know. Let me say a couple things. I'm going to shorten this up a bit. But let me say this. I want to make a couple of comments just as I finish up this morning. As you move forward, I have noticed this in a lot of churches. I'm in a lot of different churches, and I've noticed something. And I want you to hear me on this, because I, and I think God wants me to say this to you as a church this morning. In evangelical circles, we have made a horrendous mistake in compartmentalizing the emotional from the spiritual in regards to maturity. And sometimes I hear this in churches, oh, forget about the emotions, they don't matter. We're people of truth, right? In fact, emotions can be dangerous and, can, and really should just be simply ignored. And at times I've thought, yeah, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe okay. But we are not to ignore our emotions. We are to redeem our emotions. See, that's what Naomi does, right? That bitterness is ultimate. She, she has to take in, but she does take inventory. She says, I am bitter. She doesn't try to conceal it, nor does she try and celebrate it. But she acknowledges it. And I've seen people over the years that seem to be, to some degree, spiritually mature, and yet they are emotional infants, and they have the emotions of adolescence, and those emotions can rule their life. And yet anybody who I've looked at and thought, wow, that person is the aroma of Christ. It's not that they're emotionless, but they've come to a place where the Spirit of God allows the emotions not to control them, but to actually teach them, right? The Gospels allow us to see the emotions of Jesus. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. That teaches us. You know what it teaches us? That Jesus suffers with us. That actually God weeps with us in our pain. And so a journey to spiritual maturity means that your emotional maturity has to go with it. And as Christians, we dare not deny our emotions. Our emotions are like 
uh, gauges on the dashboard of our life. If your dashboard gauge for anger keeps coming up in the red zone, that should be telling you something. What can you learn from that? When I was a younger father, I at sometimes would struggle with anger. And I was like, man, I, I can't get angry over stuff like this. And so I let that teach me that the anger of man, the word of God tells us, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It just makes you look like a jerk. And so God taught me in that. Naomi and Ruth took inventory of their emotions and learned from their emotions. Thomas Merton, the great Catholic theologian, said there's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. For life is maintained and nourished in us with a vital re relationship with reality. That's where I'm going back to is don't measure your life at any one time in your life, but do take inventory and say, here's where I am emotionally and spiritually, and, and I'm here today, but guess what? I want to get over there. And with God's help and the help of other godly people and the study of the word and the Spirit's work in my life, I can get there. I will get there. Self-knowing needs to take place if you want to be growing. Transformation is always preceded by an understanding of reality. Always. So accept and understand who you are, church. Regardless of some of the ugliness of that reality, knowing that God has accepted you as you are, but he doesn't desire for you to stay just where you are. Right? Remember what I said, we're Christians. We're on this journey. And then you begin that journey, that journey that God has called you on, and he does his restorative, redemptive work in you. I believe that's what Pastor Terry's heart is, to see God grow in you and continue to do a restorative work. Let me paint a picture of this in real life as we start to close here. Jesus called a man named Peter to follow him. Right? In fact, Jesus is so convinced that this guy has a hope-filled future, he changes his name. Changes his name, right? And he tells him on his earthly journey, you know what, you're, you're gonna be a cornerstone, Peter, in the building of my church. But before I really can use you, Peter, I'm going to help you understand you have some pride issues. He can't see it. You, you think you're quite brave, Peter, but, you know... You want people to believe something. And through a series of events culminating in a difficult, debilitating, temporary defeat in the courtyard of Caiaphas, Peter comes face to face with the reality that he is not who he pretends to be. He is a pretender. He has become expert in the art of self-packaging. And Peter tells us, the church, when he puts pen to paper in 1 Peter chapter 5, listen to this. This is going from, this is where I am, but this is where I want to be when Peter grows both emotionally and spiritually. He writes this to us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Take inventory, acknowledge who you are. So that at the proper time, it's not instantaneous, takes a little while, he may what? Exalt you. 
pick you up, build you up, hold you up. And then the verse we often quote is the last part of this. Casting all your anxieties on him because why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. He wants you to be better so that you can do better. And friends, I've gone through seasons in my own spiritual life where I, you know, I think I'm something and then all of a sudden God raises in my reality that, man, Steve, you, this, come on. You got, you got to figure this out, man. And every time I approach God in that vulnerability of my sin, I experience the depths of God's love in much deeper and greater ways. But when I fall back into that sort of self-improved repackaged Steve, my experience of God's love is so weakened. And so I encourage you to grow deeper, deeper, daily, deliberately, decidedly. And it's this kind of reality check, friends, that takes us to the core reality of the cross. When you do that reality check, you know what happens? We realize that we're so unworthy to call Jesus friend and Godfather. We realize that the reality is that to be able to understand that is insurmountable. And at the same time, we realize that his willingness to call us friend and child is unexplainable. So glorious. When my son Spencer was about 13, he decided to run track and field. Now, don't let your kid get into track and field. We were in South Carolina. It, what, it, what it translates to is you're going to spend 12 hours in the sun to see your kid do something for nine seconds. So he was, he was doing short running. He's a strong kid, good runner. So he was doing like 100 meter, 200 meter and everything. So he was in this 200 meter race. And uh, I went right down to the finish line with, you know, and the other parents are standing there. And, uh, and there's all these timekeepers for each of the lane. They're all standing there. And they fire the gun and they start over there on the track and they come around the thing and then they come up. And, you know, some kids when they're like 12 or 13, they look like they're sort of running in snowshoes. You know, they're kind of like, oh, you know. But then once in a while you see a kid, you know, that's built to run, you know, and they're running like, you know, you know when you watch Olympics and you see these men and women, they're like, and you go, that is just like a machine. You know what I mean? Every movement is driving them forward, right? So I'm standing, and these kids come around, and there's one kid out in front, and he's like, I'm like, you know, here's the next Olympic runner. I mean, this kid, he is strong, and he's just like this. And I say sort of the other parents out loud. I said, man, that kid's built. Look at that kid. He's built to run. And one of the old timekeepers, he was an old guy, you know, a southern guy with holding his stopwatch, and he turns like this, and he says to me, son, in this race, it ain't how you drive, it's when you arrive. Listen carefully as I close church. In this race that we are in and the comparisons of following Jesus to athletic endeavor are significant in the New Testament. The writer to Hebrews tells us to lay aside every weight that holds us back and every sin that impairs us and to run with perseverance or endurance. The race that is set before us, it's set before you. You don't get to choose your race. It's set before you. And in this race, 
It actually is the exact opposite. It doesn't matter when you arrive, but it matters how you drive, how you live your life. Paul said, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Some translations say, I have not comprehended. In other words, Paul says, I'm following Jesus, but I ain't got this thing all figured out. But one thing I do, here's what I'm gonna do. This is Paul, this is what I'm gonna do. Forgetting what lies behind, remember we said a few weeks ago, you are a product of your past, but you are not a prisoner of it. Forgetting what lies behind, and straining, giving my best, surrender, sacrifice, obedience to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call. Don't measure your life by today because this ain't the end of the race. And you receive a prize. Paul also talks about the prize. Listen, listen. In the future... In the future, there is laid up for me, everybody that's faithful to the end, followers of Jesus, there's laid up for you the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, really? Who else? but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you. You get the crowd too. Now back to Peter as we close. You know what Peter said? When Jesus appears, you, write your name in there, you will receive the crown from King Jesus of unfading Glory. Wow. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Temple Baptist Church, press on for Jesus. Press on with Jesus. And press on to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I believe deeply that this church has a hope-filled future. They may have been through some Naomi days. But the days ahead are hopeful. May they be people of obedience, surrender, sacrifice. Not measuring Temple Baptist today, but the future which is glorious. May they let the Spirit of God have the run of the house here at this church. May they daily walk in obedience to your will and your mind as to what you have for them on mission for the glory of Jesus here in Sarnia and beyond. And Father God, we know you are faithful. You are good. We trust you in all of this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you and keep you.